Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They expect me to die here. Luckily, they missed my laser wristwatch. Just in the nick of time. Now to finish things off with this talcum powder that's really an acid bomb. Humanity saved again. No sweat. Da-da-da-da. Hello, welcome once again to another episode of Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions by History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you for your company, as ever. Dagger shoes, lipstick, gas grenade, razor-rimmed hat, laser rifle, milk bottle grenade, prosthetic nipple. Not my weekly Amazon search history, just a few of the gadgets that have appeared in Bond films over the years. This month marks the 70th anniversary of the very first James Bond novel, and today we are continuing our celebrations of the inventions that made Bond Bond. Last week we learnt about MI9 and the men who inspired the character Q. This time it's all about the gadgets. We're going to be talking to Andrew Hammond, curator of the Spy Museum in Washington DC, to hear about Bond-like gadgets in the real world. But first, I'm talking to Andre Millard, author of the book, Equipping James Bond. And I wanted to know, why was Ian Fleming so obsessed with gadgets? Are the gadgets in the film different from the original books? And what part do the gadgets play in the mythology of James Bond? Andre, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with us. I know about MI9 and I know about Fleming's involvement and interest in security services, but I just want to try and sort of pin down Fleming's particular interest in gadgets and technology. Like, was did it was it was it purely because that's what was going on? in MI9? Or was it something, did he have a sort of personal history? Or was it, or was it the p- time period? No, he was, as I argue in the book, he is a technological enthusiast from day one. Same group of people, early part of the 20th century, who bought motor cars and rich ones, airplanes and cameras and phonographs. He just liked stuff like that. He always liked stuff like that. He always bought stuff like that. And World War Two just opened up a whole new avenue of nifty little mechanical gadgets that he just really liked to play with. And I, but I wonder that kind of post-war enthusiasm for gadgets is also the the space race. It's all of that going on. And true, but it's a different sort of technology. You've got to draw the line between the simple mechanical stuff that Ian Fleming really liked 
and the technology that the, the films embrace, which is you right, the space race and all sorts of stuff. You know, there's definitely a line between Fleming and the books and Fleming and the films. And the films have a momentum all of their own. I wouldn't say by the time he died that Fleming was that happy about the way the films really what, dealt with his hero. Why? What? For what reasons? As the gadgets take off after Goldfinger, they then become, you know, a force of their own. And I think it's so far divorced from the kind of gadgets that Fleming had in mind. Fleming's Bond makes stuff up as he goes along. He innovates as he goes along. He's a little bit of the, you know, this sort of, I'll escape from the Gestapo prison by doing this, this and this. But in the films, they are presented to him as complete working technological systems. You know, all he has to do is press the button. But there does seem to be something quite zeitgeisty about it. In a way, you know, the 1950s and the 1960s, there is this promise post-war beginnings of the space age that technology will be this great savior and i detect a kind of there is a tension i think isn't there between bond and technology because in a way the kind of he's always he's always slightly dismissive i think of the technology that q q's always raising his eyebrows and is telling bond off and of course. bond's a bit kind of like dismissive of it all because the human being is the important thing rather than the the gadgetry so you get that those two things in a way pulling against each other well yeah but bond's looking for a father figure isn't he and he's got one in m and he's got one in q and he rails against q where he very rarely rails you know and m says use the walther Bond says, I'll use the Walther. But with Q, who is a father figure, I mean, I think the important thing, two important things about Q, he's the longest lasting and people love Q. Like, you know, they love that character. The second thing is he is instructs us as well as Bond. So we've got that expert. We know what the gadget's going to do, right? Yeah, and then we're waiting for and him then to, we're play, wa- to play. And we're waiting for, him to, <laughs> waiting for him to flip the top of the gear knob on the DB5, really press the button, and, but we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, now I know what's going to happen. They're not... It's not like it's a surprise no. to us. That's, I've never thought of it like that, Andre. That's really interesting. In, in a way, the kind of pleasure of the gadgets is us knowing what's going to happen, the exploding pen or the tea tray that chops someone's head off. And Absolutely. It's clever. It's clever writing. And it's sort of like, ah, that makes we become part of that. Mm. Ah, I know what's going to happen. He's going to press the button and blah, blah, blah. The, the problem is, is that as the technology gets more and more and more and more complicated, You've got to have more and more and more explanations and more and more talking of Q. And some of the later stuff is just, you know, like video game type stuff. So there is a period where we're all kind of together with Q in the early films, but then he just moves. I mean, how how do we understand some of the biomechanical systems that you get in, you know, the last few films? There's a lot of background. But exploding whatever... We're all in on that. I'm interested in the sort of progression of the gadget. Like, they're going to get more and more ridiculous, I think, or more and more... Yeah, ridiculous. Ridiculous is the word, but that's... I mean, we're talking about, you know, 50, 60 years. By the time you get to, I don't know, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the production crew of E.ON are running out of ideas. I mean, Cat Adams says, 
I built all the sets I could possibly think of. The Spy That Loved Me was the biggest set I think anyone had ever built in the UK. And what do we do now? I think there's a quote from the producer, from Cubby Broccoli, right? And I think this is, with each new Bond picture, we have stress. We have to be bigger, better, more spectacular, more exciting, more surprising than the previous ones, dreaming up new stunts, new twists, original gimmicks. And that becomes a real burden on these people because at the same time, Bond was a, a view into the future. One of the ways they promoted the later Bond films was, you know, tomorrow's technology today. So the space shuttle flies in a Bond film, I think, before it actually flew. And I think that puts a real burden. You know, if you take, they tried to take the gadgets out of one film on a Majesty suit, and it bombed. I mean, people wanted the gadgets, they wanted Q, and that was it. It's really interesting, that, isn't it? Perhaps I've always thought that the gadgets are a bit of an afterthought, a bit of a, a, an addendum, a bit of fun. But actually, they're pretty central, aren't they? They're pretty... Absolutely. Guns, gadgets, girls. You take one of those out of the formula and it fails. But, but you say, well, now we've got to say, OK, okay, why? They are visually interesting, right? They show that Bond is smarter than the average man, right? Smarter than the average bear. And they play a really big part in the narrative. That's to say, the gadgets don't just appear and disappear. The gadgets turn the narrative. Bond gets captured. Bond's going to get killed. He whips out his cigarette lighter and, and blah, blah, blah. The difference being that the kind of gadgets that Fleming envisioned were really simple mechanical things from World War II. After Gold, you know, Goldfinger to me is the sort of the dividing. After Goldfinger, you had to have gadgets. When they surveyed the audience, the gadgets were just, you know, the DB5 and everything else. And so after that, it's a requirement. But if you've got to beat yourself every single film, you've got to go one better, one bigger, it puts a strain. And, and the latter films, I think you go from the sublime to the ridiculous. But also, it's not just the, the gadgets that Bond has. We have that scene where we're in Q's workshop and we see other gadgets. You know, the camera will pan along and they'll be testing other things that won't be used. Just, you know, bodies with exploding heads and, you know, that kind of stuff. That's an obligatory scene, right? Walks through and the people... What we don't see is people actually devising the technology. All we see is the explosion at the end. There's no innovation in it. There's no intellectual struggle about how I get this thing to work. It's there. It's a package. All we got to do is press the button. And I think that fits into the later, more powerful imperative than the gadgets, is using the Bond film to promote certain products. That's really interesting because there's always Bond has always been about product placement right from the beginning, hasn't he? He always has. But that's Fleming saying, I want the finest whiskey, I want the finest champagne, I want the finest caviar. Okay, because that's Fleming. But later on, we've got deals between Eon Productions and Toyota and Sony and everybody else. If we can get our stuff on your film, we'll give you our stuff. And that, you know, that how much Lotus gave and what? two Lotus Aspirias and two body shells just to have it in the film because they knew if James Bond was going to drive our car, sales would go through the ceiling. So what you see in the later Bond are products that are there, soon to be on the market, 
you know, they are unique, but complete products. So you don't have to amend anything. But the guys that Q was based on, and there are two or three, they're really inventive people. I mean, they're really, they're innovators. They're, you know, it's a world war. They've got shortage of this, that, and the other. And Q has got to come up with just hundreds of little Minox sub-miniature cameras. Well, I think of The Great Escape and I think of the, the scene with Donald Pleasance and The Great Escape forging passports and making little trinkets and trains that run through tunnels and air bellows to pump air and, and all the rest of it. And Fleming loved that stuff and loved the guys that did it. But unfortunately, in the movies, the guys that he respected so much become eventually just figures of ridicule. Poor old Q. They dress him up in ridiculous clothing. They give him dumb things to do. It's like he becomes another joke. But, you know, people who forged Nazi documents, that takes some innovation. And that's what Fleming really admired. I don't think Fleming would have thought that the later stuff where you're just getting BMWs from BMW and you add some CGI stuff is going to impress him. I mean, that's where his head was. I mean, other than drinking and golf, he loved toys. Just before we wrap up, Andre, I want to know, for you, do you have a favourite gadget, however ridiculous? Do you have one that... Oh, it has to It has to be the DB5. It has to be. With the gear knob and ejector seats. Well, everything, because it's got a bit of everything. It's got some World War II stuff. You know, the oil slick... The stuff coming, you know, the bit, the bit that punctures the tires. And yet it's got a technology that's so prescient, you know, that little homing device where he picks it up on the little screen. Yeah. I mean, that's GPS before <laughs> GPS is even thought of. And then he puts the tracker in the sole of his shoe. Well, yeah, they had transistors, but they couldn't have done it at that time. So, yeah, and plus it's a really nice car. Well, I was going to say, it's all wrapped up in this beautiful, elegant machine from a different era. But that's your zeitgeist, because Fleming wanted a Bentley, the 1930s racing Bentley, which is a monster. I mean, it's just a bloody monster. But Ken Adam and the staff of Eon just said, we've got to have something 60s. And that DB5 is just... So beautiful, you know. What do you think of the, the sort of franchise now and, and where where's it going? I mean, there's been, it's, you know, Bond got killed in the last one. Did he really? As far as I'm concerned, he's been dead for years. I don't look at, I don't look at them. They're boring. Skyfall is a good film. Skyfall is a good film, I, I would argue. But I mean, they're, they're on, they're, it's a sort of kabuki. They go on forever. They're way too long. There's no humour. Well, you, you, maybe you're right. Do you think they're sort of becoming a little bit too earnest? And again, reflections of society, they're, maybe they're getting True. too... I think Roger Moore pushed it more into the jokey side. I love See, that's why I liked it, you see, because it was for me, it was always that raised eyebrow. It was always... Because I could see that it's the whole thing is kind of ridiculous. And, and probably Roger Moore is closer to the bond that Fleming wanted. There's not any roughness to him. The thing I liked about Sean Connery was that just edge of nastiness. You know, the scene in Doctor No where the doctor thinks he's in the bed and he opens the door and he fires into it and Bond is behind the door and he says, you've had your six shots. <laughs> yes, sir. And he shoots him in the back. <laughs> I think he shoots him twice. And at the time, people were appalled. It's like you go back and read the film reviews of the Sean Connery Bonds and you think it was a, a massacre film. 
are people scream, oh, there's so much violence and it's callous and it's really nothing compared to today. We're heading into a, a new Cold War, perhaps, looking at the sort of politics now. The world is shifting and I'm wondering whether it's going to re- reflect in the Bond world. There's no room for gadgets anymore because we don't have human beings doing it. The human agency is now Well, it's all cyber. Over. I suppose the new Q in the new Bond films is much more concerned with cyber and, and the online world. I mean, if you're looking at something that's really spectacular, look at the gadgets that got the CIA and the Royal Engineers interested so that they contact Ian and say, can we have one of those, please? Like what? Like what? What did? Well, there was the rebreather in Thunderball, which is the two CO2 things. Explain, Andre, what a rebreather well, is. Well, for... te- technically, it's not a rebreather, but we won't go into that. Basically, you've got to have Bond swimming underwater and doing daring do's, right? But without him putting on the whole tank and, and everything else. And he can't, so he's got this little device. Did you ever have an air gun with a CO2 container on? Well, I had an air gun, but no, it was one that you sort of had to cock. So oh, would, okay. Uh, well, you can get them with... Now I, I see the UK newspapers, people are saying that they put these laughing gases on. <laughs> little metal container. Two of them together with a bit of plastic. And he sticks it in his mouth and he jumps in. And he swims around, he kills the shark, whatever. And so the Royal Engineers ask Eon, you know, what about that and the CIA? And the story goes that they're talking to the Eon guy. So he says, no, we made it up. It, it's just, a, you know, it's for, and they said, well, well, how, how did he manage to do it? And he said, well, he held his breath. <laughs> Andrew, I've been absolutely, I've really, really enjoyed this chat. I could just talk to you all day because you've got lots of interesting things right. to say, but I wanted to say a huge thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time. Loved it. So there you have it. Thank you very much to Andre for that wonderful chat. Coming up after the break, we are going inside the world's largest spy museum and into the weird world of real life spy gadgets. On Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the Middle Ages. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? We explore cutting-edge research. Genetic signatures found in present-day Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found. From everyday life to dynasty-shattering events. It's a time when all the major Viking raids have started, which as Christians they think of as vengeance from heaven and reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base, and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries, and latest research. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to part two of The Gadgets That Made Bond. I'm about to play you my chat with Andrew Hammond of the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I spoke to him really to find out about spy gadgets in real life. What do they look like? Do they exist? What do spies use them for? Do they bear any resemblance to what we see in the Bond films? So get ready for stool pigeons, super secret bowler hats, and a Soviet bug built by the invention of the theremin. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to join you. What happens in the Spy Museum? You've got lots of gadgets. I know you've got some Bond stuff. Just quickly, what Bond things do you have? So we've got everything from Aston DB5, the classic Bond car. And then we've got things like Jaws's Teeth. So I grew up in the late 70s, 80s, and Roger Moore was kind of he, my... He's the best Bond! He's the best... Okay, he... Honestly, let's just establish a fact. Moonraker is the best Bond film. I strongly disagree. <laughs> I, th- I mean, one of the things that we're going to speak about today is technology, right? So... <laughs> I just want to talk about Moonraker. <laughs> no, about technology. With, the, with the earlier Bond movies, like Doctor No, you know, sure, they're fantastical in some ways, but they're more believable. But I feel like when Roger Moore becomes Bond, then it becomes more and more fantastical. So Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I from memory, gadgets became more prevalent in Bond films during the Roger Moore years, so the 1980s, you know, the gadgets became the thing. And as a kid, that was the bit I liked most about the Bond films. I loved the gadget bit. I was like, yes, we're in the you know pens that explode and things, and you know, I don't know. I, that was that was the good bit for me. That's a good en- entry into the International Spy Museum because <laughs> we have lots of gadgets. So we've actually got the largest collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts in the world. Listen, listen, you've 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 come up with a, a sort of a, a list of sort of three areas of spy gadgets. So I think why don't we kind of go through some of those and you can tell us some of the things that that sort of stick out for you as being interesting. And and you've you've put these into a group covert action, surveillance and disguise. What do you think? Should we start with covert action? Yeah, let's do that. My producer Freddie has in a, in a note he's put covert action brackets blowing shit up. But <laughs> <laughs> that can certainly be part of it. That can certainly be part of it. It can also be less destructive. It could be covert action where you're and this is something we see at the moment where you're influencing the political debate in a certain country or you're covertly putting articles in a newspaper using front organisations and so forth. So it doesn't have to be destructive, but I mean, of course it can be. So what have you got? We, you've, there's a, one particular thing that's interesting here, which is Sleeping Beauty. 
So tell us about Sleeping Beauty. What is it and what did it do? Basically, it comes from World War II, the special operations executive, the people that Churchill wanted to help set Europe ablaze. They came up with all different kinds of gadgets, technological innovations and so forth. And one of the ones that they came up with is the Sleeping Beauty, which is a one-person what's called a wet sub. I'm just looking at a picture of it here. Basically, it's like an underwater motorcycle, maybe, but obviously without wheels. It's like a, well, it's like a torpedo that you, kind of, that you kind of sit on and away you go, but you're wearing full scuba gear. And, and there are torpedoes like that, but this is sometimes being called an underwater canoe. So it's kind of like sitting in a canoe or a kayak, but it goes underwater and it's powered and it will deliver you to a particular place so that you can conduct covert action, in this case, attaching mines or bombs to naval ships and so forth. And was this actually used? Yeah, this was used in World War II. It also became the basis for the US Navy SEALs. They have something similar-ish. So this is something that has continued down to the present day. It's pretty Bondy, isn't it? I mean, I think, I think you know, the Lotus Alain of Roger Moore and various films, didn't that go underwater, I think? It had that sort of submersible capability. Yeah, one, one of the things that I find quite fascinating about this is that there is a, there are a couple of links to the Bond movie, so you rightly pointed out from The Spy That Loved Me, the Lotus Esprit S1. Lotus Esprit, sorry, not the Lotus Island, sorry. Yeah, James Bond takes it into the water and then it becomes a, a submarine. In actuality, this was really done. So the actual Lotus Esprit did go underwater you know, because it didn't have CGI back then, but it was a <laughs> really? wet. Actually, so, so, <laughs> but it was, but it was a wet sub, so it was actually similar to Sleeping Beauty. So that's one link, and then the other one is another another Roger Moore movie where octopus, where another classic, <laughs> where Roger Moore comes up on a bank in a crocodile submarine. So for quite a few people, this is seen as the the height of when Bond you know, jumps the shark for a period of time when it becomes quite fantastical. Yeah, yeah. Roger Moore is a clown, you know, crocodiles, submarines and so forth. But there's, yeah, there are a couple of links and it's the same underlying rationale, right? It's it's trying to get away from people. It's trying to disguise what you're doing. It's trying to sneak up on people, trying to conduct covert action, basically. Interesting. Well, that's a great example of, of, a, of a gadget that sums up covert action, secret submarines. Let's move on to surveillance. And you've got a great example, and it's called the Great Seal, a.k.a. The Thing. And we say Great Seal, you have to imagine the, the seal of the United States of America, as in the eagle withholding laurel leaves in its talons, of course, we'll, we're familiar with. But tell us about the story of the Great Seal. Oh, this is such a fantastic story. I really love this one. So the year is 1945. A bunch of Soviet school children present it to the American ambassador in Moscow. He hangs it up in his study. It's a wooden seal, as you say, of the great seal of the United States. Later on, in the early 50s, it's basically discovered that there's a, a listening device inside it. How did they do So this was a... Hang on, let me just get... Let's get... This was a gift. This was a gift. Oh, here's our lovely seal hanging on your wall. And there was a listening <laughs> device inside. How did they know there was a listening device inside? So, so this, is, this is a gift. And one of the reasons why it's not discovered is because it's actually using very cutting-edge new technology. So it's something called a passive cavity resonator, 
which has no power source and couldn't be picked up by conventional counter-surveillance measures or anti-bug you know, devices. So it basically was in there quietly. One day, a British signals intelligence operator hears American voices. Okay, what's, what's going on here? They quickly put it together that it's actually coming from the American embassy. So they do a sweep, they try to find it, they don't find anything because they're trying to find things that are based on the assumption that these devices will pick it up. But eventually, they, they find it in the Great Seal, and they're like, how the heck does this thing work? Like, what, what what's going on? So eventually, they, f- they figure out that it's something that's activated by a high-energy radio beam from a van outside of the embassy, that will set off the device so that it starts picking up audio through the beak of the eagle. That's and it would awesome! Be, <laughs> and and it would be doing that for years. So, hang on. So, you take it off the wall. Was it like hollow with gizmos inside or, or, or was it just like stuck on the back? There was just a place where it, it was inserted. It's something like maybe think of a like a 50 pence piece, maybe a little bit like that and then something maybe about six to eight inches long, a very thin antenna, and basically the radio wave from outside would activate it and then it would function until the radio wave was withdrawn. So so if you'd done a bug sweep, you wouldn't find it because it wasn't technically functioning at that point. So how long was it in how long was it there for in situ? It was in there until nineteen fifty three, I think it was. And so it was decade. there. <laughs> So yeah, it was there for a considerable period of time. There's there's debates that are still going on about did the Americans know about it and just leave it there and just talk about things that weren't important around it <laughs> or such... or did they not though the whole time? My favourite <laughs> fact about it is that it was created by Leon Theremin as in the guy who invented the theremin, the musical instrument theremin as in the beginning of Pet Sounds. Yeah, and I believe it's it's operating using related principles. So yeah, so it's a pretty it's a pretty amazing story that's connected to it. And when they found it, it did baffle them for a while. They were they were trying to figure out what what was going on. <laughs> it's really cool. Anyway, so that's surveillance. Moving on from surveillance, we could talk all day about surveillance. I could talk all day about that one. That's brilliant. Uh, let's go on to disguises, not fake noses and glasses, unfortunately. But actually, well, this is classic Bond: the bowler hat. I think of odd job throwing the bowler hat and killing people with it. But here's a bowler hat that was actually used by MI6 that had a metal frame inside and would hold a pistol. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is disguise deception. Quite often in espionage and intelligence, it's about one thing appearing to be something else, to be something that it's not. So sometimes this can be donning a disguise so that you look like a different person. Sometimes this can be making a radio that's actually used for espionage to look like a, an innocent radio. But in this case, it's about using an everyday item, a bowler hat or something that was everyday, <laughs> probably more when the bomb... <laughs> You'd kind of stand yeah. out a bit <laughs> yeah. now if you sort of you turned would, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although once I broke into... This is another really silly story. Do you remember there was a Simpsons episode where Homer has a giant Stetson and he wants to frame Apu in the in the convenience store and he has a giant Stetson and he has a, like a ridiculously huge camera lens sticking out of it. It was always my favourite episode and once I d- actually did that, I got a, I had an idea that I wanted to interview the Queen 
a long time ago. And so I thought, well, what I could do is I could go to the, I could go to Royal Ascot. And in my top hat, I had cut a hole in it and I had a massive camera. It was for a comedy thing. But anyway, okay. <laughs> it, it was just, it was my rubbish disguise. Anyway, sorry. Yes, bowler hats. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a bowler hat, but it was used to hide a gun in, in this case. Actually, I was thinking about Odd Job, and he's one of my favourite Bond villains. Just thinking about the, the dynamics of it, I don't know, I mean, maybe it can be done, but I don't know if a bowler hat is the best kind of hat to throw across a room like a frisbee. No, it's terrible. Like a flat cat would work. Well, that's what I was thinking, like a flat cap from Peaky Blinders or, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, that would but, make more sense because that's more frisbee-like. But a bowler hat doesn't seem to have the right dynamics. But but we didn't we didn't question that when we watched it because it's such a dramatic scene. It does seem a bit odd that you'd have a bowler hat to hide a gun. I mean, why? If you're going to hide a gun, you presume you could just stick it down your trousers. And I mean, you're going to have to sort of take your hat off, get it, and then shoot someone. Presumably, it seems like a bit of a fad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's. <laughs> I guess that's one way to look at it. I guess that the the benefits of the bowler hat are that it's not somewhere that people would necessarily yes. first begin to look. Keep it under your hat. There you go. There you go. Keep that's where the saying comes from. Hat. Hey, so that's a little look at disguises. So that actually exists. Bowler hats with concealed weapons. You've got a couple of examples here, which I'm keen on. The sort of worst spy gadget and the best spy gadget in your opinion so let's go worst and then you can tell us what you think the best one is and i have to agree with you about the best one i think it's amazing but what what have you, you got the biggest flop the glomar am i pronouncing it right the glomar no this is this is one of the biggest successes oh i see this freddy's got it wrong he's put them in the wrong order <laughs> this is another just fantastical story i mean you, one of the things that I love about this subject matter is that sometimes the truth is weirder and stranger than the fiction. So this is basically, let's steal a submarine. <laughs> it's the hunt for Red October. <laughs> it's the hunt for Red October or in The Spy Who Loved Me, that's also a thing, the one with the Lotus Esprit. So a couple of ships go missing. A couple of submarines go missing, a British and a, and a Russian one. And this actually, the Glomar Explorer, in the year 1968, four submarines vanish. An Israeli submarine, a French submarine, an American submarine, the USS Scorpion, and a Soviet submarine, the K-129. So a lot of the Cold War is about the cat and mouse game. One of the reasons why submarines are so important is because they can launch nuclear missiles. So the cat and mouse game, who's got the quietest sonar, who's got the quietest engines, you know, what kind of technology are they using? So this is a great intelligence gathering opportunity. This Soviet sub, the United States finds out that it's went down, I think around 1500 miles northwest of Hawaii. So in the very north, in the northern Pacific. So they come up with this idea, let's let's try to get the sub and take what intelligence we can get from it. So this is 1968, remember. This process is set in motion. They decide that they're going to build a ship, but they need a cover story. So for the cover story, the famous Hollywood producer, who's a bit slightly wackadoodle, Howard Hughes, he becomes part of the cover story. It's actually called the Hughes Glomar Explorer after Howard Hughes. And the idea is that 
they're looking for manganese on the ocean floor, so a metal. The great thing, I think, about having someone who's a bit, you know, a bit crazy as part of a cover story is that everything makes sense because people that are a bit crazy do things that to the rest of us don't make any sense. So just hang on. So they built this ship, but it was to look for these submarines. Well, they knew where they were in order to sort of get it. The only problem being that the ship is 17,000 feet under the ocean, so a few miles down. This is where the story gets interesting. So they build the ship. The ship eventually goes through its trials. It sails round the Cape of Good Hope, comes up into the Pacific. It goes to where the Soviet submarine went down. It has huge, almost like huge claws. These huge claws go down, bring it around two-thirds of the way up, and like when you go to the fairground and try to win a teddy bear for your kids or your nieces or something. Or for myself. And the darn hooks, or for yourself, and the darn hooks open up. Those are a swid, those are a con. On a side note, no one has ever, ever, ever won anything on those, I don't believe. <laughs> Prove me wrong. So, Sorry, carry on. No, no. So they get it two-thirds of the way up, And then around two-thirds of the submarine breaks off and goes back to the ocean floor. So they bring up the one-third, take the available intelligence, they find some Soviet submariners on board, they have a ceremony for them, lay them to rest. This video is later given to the the Russians 20 years later. And then not long afterwards, there's a, a... Basically, to cut a long story short, news of this breaks in the Los Angeles Times. The CIA approached, you know, what's going on here? Were you involved in this operation? What happened? And they came out with what's known as the Glomar response, which you've probably heard of. No, I've never heard of the Glomar response. You probably not. You probably don't know it by that name, but you've probably heard the Glomar response. And the Glomar response is, we can neither confirm nor deny, deny. that you know this operation took place. So, That's so it's the classic. Excellent. It's the classic answer, non-answer. That's really, that's really, really... In, there, there's, it's going to look something up. There's a, there, I keep going back to Russia. There's a Russian word which is a very similar thing, and I, and I can't remember. Vranyo. Do you know what Vranyo means? It almost means like that. It's like, we're lying. You know that we're lying, but we're going to lie to you anyway, and there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it. But it is that sort of... We, we all know what went on, really, but we're going to just, you know... Using, using clever language. The Glomar response. I'd never heard of that term. Okay, so not a flop at all. Really, really interesting story. Okay, moving on. This is my favourite thing of all time. I don't believe it exists. I mentioned trying to spy on Area 51 with a balloon. And of course, things like Chinese spy balloons. I am looking at a picture of a stuffed pigeon with what looks like a GoPro, like a GoPro that was made in the 1920s, strapped to it. Pigeon cameras. Please tell me this is real. Please tell me it's a thing. Please tell me it worked. Yeah, the basic idea is let's strap a camera to a pigeon. It's going to fly over the trenches and we can see what the enemy are up to. We can get some kind of aerial reconnaissance. So the basic idea works. You can see some of the photography. The problem, if you think about it, is that pigeons bank. They change direction. They don't you can't. Pro- it's not like a joystick. You can't program it to go in particular areas. They're rubbish camera, camera. <laughs> really bad. And then you have to make sense of all the images after you get the the photography. So the basic idea 
works, but it's just not really a long-term or useful solution. But the thing is, the idea is sound, like the practicality. And also, you'd have to take the film to boot, so it would take ages, it would take, you know, a week to get back, that kind of thing. And actually, nowadays, there's a company, I believe, in the Netherlands that is making drone seagulls, drone pigeons that can you can attach cameras to. So, so the beauty of that is that if it looks like the real thing, but you can like give it more directionality. But then if someone's watching it really closely, there's probably a good chance that they will be able to tell that it's not a pigeon because pigeons move in certain ways, seagulls move in certain ways, and the ways in which a human might move it around might not correspond with it. But it's a lovely idea, and it's a, lo- it's a lovely... It's it really a lovely. Is. I mean, the pigeons, the, one, one way in which they are effective is that they can communicate messages. They can transmit messages from A to B in quite effective ways, and you can even encrypt the message. Yeah, speckled old speckled Jim. Old Speckle Jim. You yeah, shot right. my Speckle Jim. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're, we're out of time. It's been lovely to chat. I just want to. I just want to ask. We've just, we've had a little whistle stop tour of some of some spy gadgets of old. Just really quickly, what do spy gadgets look like today? I mean, is it just all miniaturized digital cyber, or other kind of cool fountain pens with? bugs in or cameras in and and that kind of stuff i think that there is a combination of things going on so some of the classics will just be modified using new technology so even think of the spy balloon so the spy balloon that came over the united states a few weeks back that won't be your great 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 grandfather's spy balloon that will probably be using well it had 16 solar panels it had a 2000 pound payload it was probably using algorithms or artificial intelligence or both. So, you know, so so you can adapt <sighs> the classics to the modern age. It's all chat GTP now. All I want is a stuffed pigeon. I want a pigeon <laughs> and a bowler hat with a gun in it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I want. But th- suffice to say that intelligence communities use gadgets in some way or another, whether it's balloons or whatever. There are all ways in which it can help them potentially do their job more safely, more efficiently, and more effectively. That's that's all it is. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. It's been really fun chatting. And thank you for agreeing with me that Moonraker is the finest of the Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <Okay. laughs> that's it. Thank you very much for listening. I'm all gadgeted out. I hope you enjoyed that little gadgety chat. And don't forget to let all your friends and family and spy handlers know about this podcast series by Carrier Pigeon, Invisible Ink, or just tell them. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive, 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.